This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Sports Startup Digital Debate Competition, brought to you by Pitch Madness and in partnership with the Sports Biz Group. My name is Tyler Kelly, founder of Pitch Madness, and we're really excited to bring you the final four debates tonight. It's been an awesome tournament thus far, and we are inching closer to crowning our champion, going down on Thursday night at 5 p.m. Eastern Time with judges David Meltzer, Wayne Kimmel, and Marquise Colston who will decide who is the ultimate winner of this tournament. But tonight, the final four, we have two great debates tonight, some amazing judges. Hopefully you all are entertained and learn a little bit as well. Remember our debate for COVID initiative that is raising $10,000 to go to the CDP COVID-19 relief fund. Again, going to support frontline workers in the healthcare industry. All right, let's get to the debates and introduce our founders. This founder believes robotics is going to be mainstream and as big as the smartphone market much sooner than people think because of gaming. Make some noise for Michael Isakov and RoboDoo. Hey guys, my name is Michael Isakov. I'm the founder and CEO of RoboDuels. RoboDuels is a real life video gaming platform. That's right, we take real robots, real drones, and we let people all across the world connect to them and control them in real time. First person view, third person view, we support unlimited cameras, it's phenomenal. The best part is we've integrated a skill-based betting solution directly into our platform. We're building some amazing tech in robotics, and in the process, we're revolutionizing esports. The best way to experience RoboDuels is by going on RoboDuels.com. Thank you so much for your consideration, and we'll see you at the debate. This founder believes online sports betting will evolve into a common and accepted household event that is as commonplace as lottery ticket purchases and just as accessible. The taboo will be replaced by gamification, pro league partnerships, and progressive technology. Give it up for Kelly Brooks and Court of Four. Hi there. My name is Kelly Brooks, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Quarter Four. Firstly, I want to thank you for being here to support COVID-19 relief efforts. I truly hope everyone around you is healthy and safe. Quarter 4 is an artificial intelligence platform that runs hundreds of models in order to predict team and athlete performance in just seconds. With voice integration, you can even get it on your Google Home. We are here and we exist to disrupt the antiquated tips and tricks industry, otherwise known as the sports betting resource industry. Traditionally, this industry has been biased and dishonest, 
And we are here to make that industry transparent with artificial intelligence modeling and the cleanest data available. Thank you again for tuning in today. Thank you, founders, for those introductions. Let's kick it over to our head referee, Nick. All right, we are in the final four for the sports startup debate competition, and this is the finalist for the esports and gaming and the sports betting and gambling sections. And we have two amazing founders, Kelly and Michael, and they're ready to debate to figure out who's going to go to the championship. So, welcome, founders. Let's get ready to debate. And to kick things off, we're going to do a coin flip to determine who will answer the first question. So, Michael, would you like heads or tails? Uh, heads. Heads. It is heads. So, would you like to receive the first question or defer? I uh, defer. So, each of you will have 45 seconds to answer uninterrupted, and then the other opponent will have 45 seconds to answer uninterrupted. You can go back and forth. Best of luck to the both of you. Let's put 10 minutes on the clock and kick things off with the first question. So, number one, the art of addressing different priorities with limited resources key to a successful startup. What issue facing the business environment today is most important and how are you addressing it? Some examples could be environmental, climate change, diversity, wage gaps, cybersecurity, geopolitics, or low employment. Yeah, so all of these issues, these global issues are really important. And the beauty of a startup is that we have a clean slate and we can incorporate uh, these issues of ethics and compliance right from the get-go. We have a clean slate. Um, and as a startup, we're running lean, so it's a lot less costly to integrate from the get-go. Um, at quarter four, for example, we're really passionate about the environment and we're really passionate about diversity and non-discrimination in the workplace. For, a th for under $1,000, we were able to implement uh, both of these into our, our policies and our processes. For example, work from home. We do work from home to reduce carbon footprint. I called my lawyer, he's a startup lawyer. He wrote up a work from home policy uh, in less than 48 hours for under $100. I put those out to my employees, they gave me the feedback. We had them signed up in 48 hours and within two weeks after implementing you know, our infrastructure, we were all working from home to reduce carbon footprint. Number two, uh, oh, discrimination. Cool answer is right there. Okay. Yeah, so obviously the COVID crisis is kind of has like one of the big, biggest impacts right now. But for us at RoboDuels, and I think for the United States at large, one of the looming geopolitical um, kind of threats or things that is like very, very relevant to businesses, not only governments, is the rise of China. So if you look at the top robotics companies in the world and investments in the world, that's in the past five years all been happening in China. Robotics has not just an application in gaming like what we're doing, but also uh, outside of, of gaming, especially in the military and actual international politics and power. So uh, if the United States doesn't make this change, uh, the United States is going to start falling behind in robotics. China is known as the hardware capital of the world because of all the manufacturing that's there. So we really need to step it up uh, as, a, as our, 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 our business. And what we've done at RoboDuels is bring robotics to the United States. Uh, and make it accessible to everyone in the United States. So we can build a whole new generation of kids growing up who are literate in robotics. 
and uh, so that the United States remains competitive within this high-tech space. I agree with um, the uh, geopolitical thing. Um, what I was going to say as well is diversity lends itself to this because diversity, uh, you're building a team that can actually interact globally as well as build a very competitive product um, within North America. Uh, so for example, provide diversity, uh, workplace harassment, and other things, what we did uh, really inexpensively was bring in a specialist to train my team within six hours to understand um, how important diversity was, which also, you know, like I said, addresses the geopolitical piece. Um, if we have a, a, a global team, um, it really helps us navigate uh, the geopolitical issues. But we brought in a specialist within six hours. My team was trained on diversity, workplace harassment and discrimination, again, for under $100. All of my employees took some tests, got certified, so now we're empowered from the environmental side as well as from um, the diversity and workplace harassment side as well. Yeah, so the United States and like US companies don't really have as much of a problem with diversity as countries around the world. Um, you know, we are one of the most diverse nations in the world and we're successful because of that. The matter that happens with yeah, but you no, know no, what? no, excuse there's, me, excuse me. I'll let you finish. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. So, if you want to make, if, if I want to make a, a PCB, or I want to make a robot, or I want to make something in the United States that has anything to do with hardware, I want to start a hardware company. I need to go out and raise ten million dollars because it costs so much to get things done here. If you live in China, if you're growing up in China. All you have to do is go to Shenzhen. You just pick something out from the marketplace. It's like an all-you-can-eat buffet. You can get anything that you want and build anything that you want super fast with super low turnaround. That's why the top robotics companies in the world are coming out of there. And not only the top robotics companies, but the top manufacturing companies. They're copying all of our IP. And we, so many companies in the United States, even apparel companies, are so dependent on China. So that dependency, although it's good, it's like kind of an international thing, there are you know, lots of geopolitical threats that are rising right now outside of the business world, and they're going to affect the business world. So as a business, what we wanna do is make sure that not only, like first we're able to take care of ourselves at home, so our country, and make sure that the kids growing up in the United States and the consumers of the United States are able to access very competitive manufacturing goods and also robotics goods and kind of grow up learning more about this high-tech space and be able I to know, be but if, if you implement diversity, I have, um, you know, immigrant visa students working on my team from China. You just, I have to go back to the point that you said the United States is very diverse and you're great at practicing diversity. We're not, we're not great at practicing diversity. Trust me, I'm a female founder in a male-dominated space. We need to implement diversity and it's going to gradually you know, answer some of these questions. I've got some brilliant people on my team who are naturally from this area. One of them specifically is from China, and he is helping us build out this really robust platform, you know, based on some of his knowledge and experience from being, you know, within China itself. So again, I agree with you that geopolitics is an issue, but I don't agree um, that diversity has been addressed, and we need to address it to make our companies more robust. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm saying relatively internationally. United States still have, like, we still have a lot of problems here. Like, there, there are places in the United States yeah. that are not diverse. So we made our, our, our company very international. Um, you know, we have, like, people from all around the world who live in America who work with us. Uh, you know, we're from Brooklyn. 
So, uh, you know, I myself come from an immigrant family. Uh, but what I'm saying is for us to remain competitive, for businesses to remain competitive in the U.S., you know, China's probably the biggest uh, kind of thing, uh, the biggest uh, kind of almost threat to that. And that's not anything that they're doing to us. It's more like what they're doing that we're not doing. Okay. So yeah. like we, like what, so what I'm saying is like, we have to step it up ourselves and, you yes. know, have our own like capability on the level of China. Otherwise they're going to become the innovator and the leader within a huge sector of the entire marketplace as a whole throughout multiple categories. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like, we have to remain competitive and that is kind of the biggest uh, thing going on in the world that I think American businesses should be concerned about. So Great. we'll move on to right to the next question. So how would you manage a client that represents 60% of your business, but as you scale, takes up 80% of your resources? So uh, with that, Michael, you'd be the first one to uh, answer that question. Yeah, so kind of a lot of the, assuming you're running a very lean organization and you know, you've done the best you can to try to cut costs, you know, really it comes down to the fundamentals of business, which is trust and relationships and being just a trustworthy business partner. So if you have a product, if you're a startup, you're probably made some great innovation and you have a client that really is, you're serving at a very competitive price because you really want that first customer. Now, if that customer is costing you money, it's a simple matter of supply and demand. You have to be upfront, transparent with your client, bring them the data and tell them, hey, you know, we're providing you this great service, we provide it at a great price. It's really competitive, you won't get it in many other places at the level that we provide, but it's costing us money and we can't really continue to operate this way, so we're just gonna have to raise the price a little bit. And it's still gonna be a super competitive price, but you have to be transparent with your client, you have to work with your client. And what we've done is RoboDuels with our first clients. Hi, Michael. Sure. Before you, before you explain even more, we'll let, we'll let Kelly have her, uh, um, so I agree that the revenue is um, one of the issues with this client. Uh, this is my second tech startup. I've dealt with these client types before. As a CEO, I've got to go back to the vision of my company and my roadmap. This client, we call them a roadblocker client. Initially, they were important to the vision, uh, but now they're hindering it. So some of the issues with this client is number one, um, they halt progression because all of a sudden you become a service agency putting out fires instead of um, a product development company and it can really hinder the valuation of your company. And as well as the revenue, which you've mentioned, Michael, um, it affects employee morale. You've hired a development team to come in and build the best and all of a sudden they're putting out fires at all times during the day because this client um, is is hogging you know your team your team services so what you have to do number one you need to prevent this from happening you need to diversify your revenue you need to diversify your client base it's a risky revenue model to have one client um, that is bringing in 60 percent of your revenue one eggs all your eggs in one basket it's very dangerous if they leave tomorrow you know your company is in big trouble so you need to either put a diversified revenue model into place right off the bat, or if this does happen to you, you pivot quickly, you focus on sales, you bring in additional clients, so this the client is no longer as is important. And if this first client doesn't eventually match the vision that you're trying to achieve, you need to transition out the client, be transparent, let them know why, or charge more money. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, totally on board with that. That's like, you know, you have to, focus on what you're doing the best. Uh, what we've done as an early stage startup, since what we do is so innovative, uh, like we connect people to robots in real time, 
people can't really get that in many other places. Even Zoom or Skype would have to hire extra engineers to connect them to robots and get the video transmitted and all that stuff. So what we've done is pretty amazing. So when we have a client, we try to be super good on customer service. And then when we have to raise the price, we're very transparent with that. And we actually charge a quite high price for our service because you know, if we're licensing this out, you know, we can assume that this can happen. So we have to get compensated for that. Otherwise, we're gonna, we don't, like, no one wants to fall in that trap where your customer is costing you more. So either you have to charge a lot more uh, or just not get into that position in the first place. Yeah, agree. And transparency comes through, you know, initial client meetings, really understanding the value of your organization. Quarter four is the same thing. Um, you know, for us, there's not a lot of people in this space who are able to integrate an AI infrastructure right into the back end of their systems. So right from the get-go, we need to prove the value of quarter four, why we're going to charge them the price that we are. Um, and obviously service the client really well, but you know, in a year and a half, make a really tough decision if this initial client, you know, isn't matching the vision of, of the company and the roadmap of the company, and my stakeholders are all of a sudden upset because this client is um, monopolizing everything that we're doing. So some tough decisions eventually have to be made in a respectful way, uh, but hopefully, again, you can from the get-go put policies into place to prevent this from happening. Great, we'll move on to the third question. So what is the most important role for a founder when scaling a company and why? It could be day-to-day -day operations, recruiting, customer service, fundraising, product development, or is it something else? And Kelly, that would be uh, 45 seconds for you starting now. Okay. We hear a million times over and over that a CEO wears many hats. Uh, when the company is scaling, I like to say that the CEO has to turn into the hat manufacturer and the hat distributor. One of the most important roles that won't change for me while I'm a CEO is that I have to mandate the vision of the company and the product roadmap. I have to make sure that that's happening because I need to you know, answer to my stakeholders at all times. Eventually, as the company grows, there's gonna be so much noise around me that I won't be able to focus. So what I need to do is communicate my vision and that product wrap, uh, map to a leadership team and that leadership team is going to dilute some of that noise that's happening around me so I can continue to focus. So for me, the most important role of a CEO during scaling times is building the leadership team, training the leadership team and reducing the noise so that I can continue forging the, forging the path of my product and my company. Michael, you're 45 seconds. Yeah. So a CEO and a founder of a company, whether you're scaling or not, there's one objective that is to multiply shareholder value. When you're scaling in particular, the most, the biggest problem that you have to avoid is uh, your company being internal strife within the company. The greatest empires fall from within. So as the founder and CEO, you have to really communicate the vision and hire, recruiting is the most important thing. You have to hire the people that are completely aligned with the vision, highly skilled, but they have to believe in what you're doing and they have to follow your leadership, okay? Because you have people who wanna go on their own and stuff, but you have to have people who are completely aligned with you because that leadership team is gonna go out and hire people, okay? And if they hire people that are not aligned with your company and not aligned with your vision, then your company is gonna start to fall apart from the inside. So those early, early hires that you make, those founders, those co-founders that you bring on, those first employees, they're super important to building this culture that kind of 
forces new hires to adopt the vision. So if someone is not down with the vision, they won't be hired. You have to have that structure in place. And as the founder and CEO, you have to be on top of that and make sure that's happening. Also, you don't want to hire too many people uh, because one of the problems that happens is, you know, a company is just a collection of people. A company will raise money and all of a sudden they'll have a ton of people come on and then three months later, six months later, half of them will be gone. You need to hire only when it's absolutely necessary and do so in a very measured way. And that's just an organizational architecture that you have to set up in the very beginning. Um, so that's what I would say. Yeah, and I just want to really, you know, you brought up trust, Michael. That's really important. The other thing that a CEO has to do with that trust is they have to delegate. Delegating, um, you know, this is my second company. Uh, my first company, I learned that, you know, I wanted to hoard, I wanted to protect. But as a CEO, you need to, again, hire the right people, hire a trusting team, aligned with the vision, and you need to be able to delegate to those people, check in, make sure they're doing you know, everything correctly that's in alignment with the vision. But you have to have some disruptors as well that might challenge, uh, that might think outside the box, and that's important too. But again, it all comes back to trust, to leadership, training the team properly, and making sure the vision's there so that your stakeholders get the highest return on value. You know, yeah, it really comes down to alignment. You know, obviously, you know, you want, uh, you need to have everyone on the same page. And obviously you want, uh, you know, if you're gonna have an, an army of lions led by a sheep is always gonna lose to a lion led by a, a lion leading an army of sheep. So yeah, you want the disruptors and all that stuff, but you need alignment. And those early hires that you make, they're gonna delegate for you that alignment. So it's not the CEO and founder who's going on and micromanaging every single person. What you're doing is at the very beginning when you have the control, because as the, as the organization grows, the CEO, the founder loses control, believe it or not. As you, when you have the control in the small phase, you wanna bring on those people that are gonna secure that control as you go forward. Um, and that's why making your early hires is so, so important and building that leadership team out. So you can delegate all you want. Agree. I don't agree that a CEO always loses control. I think there's always ways to ensure that that doesn't happen. I think sometimes we're doing too much and we might lose vision and we might lose our finger on the pulse. But as a good CEO, you bring those leaderships back in, the leadership team back in, you rally to ensure that that control um, is still being kept within the management offices. The beginning of the company is the most important part because the stronger the stem, the stronger the branches. So yeah, you can say you'll never lose control, but if you have a company with 10,000 people, you know, hire 10,001, you're not gonna be in control over, okay? That's gonna be some, someone that you, that's gonna be a decision that you made five years ago that is gonna impact whether or not that person has a role, they know what they're doing, they believe in the company, they believe in the vision, and they're gonna add value to the company. So you have- It does happen five years ago, but nobody's irreplaceable either. Somebody on your well, core yeah, yeah. leadership no team that you hired five years ago, you can replace them to ensure yeah, that you know, you can live in the world to of help you keep control. You can live in the world of hypotheticals, but you know, uh, you know, you could have been a hundred million dollar company, but you're a $10 million company. You could have been if you just made that decision. I mean, you can go on and on with these hypotheticals, but really, if you just stick to the fundamentals, you make good long-term decisions, uh, that are totally aligned with the vision of your company and the alignment and kind of like how are you going to multiply shareholder value not add to it multiply it because that's your job so the way to do that is by really hiring the right people in the beginning that are going to do that are going to take your company there and uh, because at some point you're not going to be able to do everything you're going to be making the key decisions 
that are gonna like help the business, but your business could be way more efficient, way more successful if you don't make these mistakes. So it's more, it's like as you scale, it becomes less about, you already have product market fit. It's less about, it's more about making less mistakes um, than it is about like more big hits because you're gonna hit, make the big hits over time and that's gonna be you as a leader kind of making the right decisions. But like for your general, whatever you're doing, you have to make as little mistakes as possible in order for your company to be successful. And if you make mistakes, mistakes, you have to have the team that's going to pivot with you quickly to, you know, run back those mistakes. So I think your leadership team, again, I think we are saying one of the same things is you need to hire well, hire smartly, but be ready to pivot. No one's irreplaceable. The CEO wears many hats um, and they have to have a leadership team around them that's going to help diffuse the noise to help the CEO continue to make the vision and the company a lot more valuable to every stakeholder. Yeah, I mean, perseverance is also a very important cultural uh, factor to implement within the, the key hires that you make initially. And, you know, it's it's a matter of literally never give up and hit and don't get hit. It's, you know, it's kind of like the sweet science. Uh, so let's you, uh, let's uh, let's a good segue to uh, let's do an overtime question. Well, you, you'll each have one um, response uninterrupted and uh, it should be a good segue. So overtime question would be. What personality traits do you think are most important to have on the team when making your early hires? So Michael, you're kind of segueing to that point, but you're 45 seconds for- uh, Yeah, so if you're in the very early stage or hiring your first employees, uh, these are people that are down with you in the trenches. This is before maybe you even have your first customer and you're just building out a product, you're doing market interviews, you're doing you know, the whole gamut, right? You're trying to get to mark product market fit and that takes an immense amount of energy. Every single company that is ever done anything has taken an immense amount of energy to create. So you need someone who has a tremendous, not only aligns with your vision like we've been talking about, but has a tremendous amount of perseverance. Now, how are you going to get someone to, to take lower pay, to take some equity on, and to work 10 to 12 hour days alongside you in a, you know, in a rag shag office and, or in a garage and try to build the next big thing? That person has to believe in what they're doing and they have to believe that what they're doing is gonna to lead to something successful. They have to believe in your company. So kind of that's one of the first major roles that you have to do as a CEO and uh, find those people that align with your company. So you don't wanna hire if you don't yeah, yeah. That's uh, more than, that's what probably your, your response would be. Yeah, so I mean, grit and determination, that's proven right now through COVID-19. My team persevered, just like what Michael said, extremely important. I think um, another really big key, this is my second company with quarter four, um, my team, they're not afraid of ambiguity. You can't over-process the process. If you have too many people adhering to process all the time, you don't get anything done. So yeah, so during a stressful time, they can't be coming to me and saying, uh, what's the priority and how do I do this? You know, they need to be able to take direction, direction that aligns with the company vision, like what Michael was saying, and take that grit, take that determination, take the passion because they're so in love with the product and get on with it. Um, I can't be bothered to have a million questions asked about one task and why aren't the processes you know, developed already. You just need to run with it. You need to be the entrepreneur of your own domain. Um, and as well, these people need to be m mitigated risk takers, uh, 
they need to have the confidence to take risks, but they can't go rogue. So um, you need to have people with confidence that can, you know, think outside the box, but don't go down a rogue pathway uh, that's going to cost my company a lot of money because they decided that they were going to take on, you know, a, their own feature development. Uh, so that's also another piece. And collaboration. All of this doesn't work without collaboration amongst your team members. If you have a toxic team member, they can drag down that team extremely rapidly um, and then everything can really come to an abrupt halt and you have to make some real decisions fast that impact everything. So that's what I feel. All right, that's a great way to end things off. Well thought out debate between Kelly and Michael. Use the hashtag debate for COVID. Let us know who you think won that round. If you haven't already, please donate to our pledging campaign to support CDP COVID-19 Relief Fund. And now we're going to go to the judges for their analysis and picks to decide who will go to the championship round. Now let's introduce our judges. First up, Teddy Blank, principal at First Star Ventures. Next, Sebastian Gross, Director of Portfolio at Lead Sports. And lastly, AJ Vaynerchuk, co-founder at Vayner Media and Vayner Sports. Let's kick it over to our head referee, Nick. All right, that wraps up an amazing debate for the final four for the esports versus the sports betting. Well-followed debate by Michael and Kelly, and now we are on to the judges for their analysis and picks. So, to get things kicked off, Teddy, could you please provide your analysis followed by your pick? Yeah, happy to. Um, I thought there was a lot of really interesting back and forth between these guys. Um, And I'll just jump in, you know, the first question about, um, you know, kind of limited resources and picking, um, you know, these kind of key global issues to focus on. You know, I thought they both had really interesting points. Um, you know, I think one thing that Michael hit on that was, um, you know, taking advantage of the moment we're in is, you know, there are going to be geopolitical tailwinds that make it advantageous to build a competitive industry company in the U.S. And I think he's positioning himself to take advantage of that for sure. Um, it's also it's up to us as a country to compete, you know, education at that stuff at an early age. He made a point about that um, being kind of crucial and finding ways to get kids engaged in that type of stuff um, just to be competitive as a country. Um, but I do think I actually liked Kelly's answer here a little better, um, talking about you know diversity of thought and how you know a diverse team can really drive uh, global competition within a company. Um, and I really do think that that's a little bit more of a broadly applicable lesson is that you know getting diversity of thought on the team um, can allow you to tackle a lot of different challenges in creative ways. Um, and I think I think Kelly um, took that question uh, f- uh, for my money there. Um, and then moving on to the second question, you know, this one is interesting because uh, there's a lot of different ways to, to approach this in terms of, you know, having a kind of a large client who's giving you some issues, especially early on. Um, you know, I think Kelly wins this, this question for me because, you know, she's focusing on the things you can really control here, which is, you know, diversifying revenue, focusing on sales, kind of building yourself a base to, to de-risk that large client. And then she also made the comment that, you know, I think takes some, some, maturity to make, which is that, look, if a customer loan no longer matches the vision, you know, tough decisions have to be made. You might have to cut someone loose. Um, and I think Mike is, is, you know, he's on point here with, look, you know, be honest and open and, 
and see if they'll take a price increase. But at the end of the day, you can't really control that. And I like that Kelly was focused on the things, uh, the things that she can control. Um, for question three, you know, uh, you know, the, the founder's role as you scale. Um, I think this is one where, uh, you know, Kelly has a little bit of a, an interesting perspective as a second time founder and um, the note about, you know, reducing noise for her and learning to delegate um, and kind of, you know, learning what she can own and what she can't um, is something that it sounds like it's coming from someone who's lived that before. Um, I do think this one, though, actually, you know, Michael had a really interesting point that you know, the leadership team you hire is going to multiply themselves, right? They'll each multiply themselves 10x over the life of the company, even early on. And, you know, A hire, A players hire A players, B players hire C players. And so I think his, his focus on recruiting as the single most important thing, um, I would totally, totally agree with there. Um, and then just moving on briefly to the, the overtime question, because this one, um, again, you know, I think uh, Kelly as a second time founder had um, probably had a better answer for this question for my money in that, you know, she's looking for folks who are entrepreneurial themselves. And that was the quality she really hired, uh, hired for, it seems, you know, I think they were both, uh, you know, vision alignment, perseverance, grit, determination. I think they were both on the same page there, but she kind of took it a step further and said, I'm looking for people who have, you know, confidence and creativity um, without rogue behavior. And I think that describes a very entrepreneurial mentality that, that she seems to be hiring for on her team. Um, and so I think it's, you know, they, they had very, very interesting and different perspectives on these questions. And um, at the end of the day, I think I got to go with Kelly. She was, um, you know, really clear and, and you know, has, has clearly given a lot of thought to this stuff, you know, in between and in between companies and with her new, with her new endeavor. And, um, you know, that's the, uh, that's, I think that's the second time founder advantage that she brought to this is, you know, she's learned a lot of these hard lessons in real life. Great. Thank you for that, Teddy. So we have one vote for Kelly, and now we're going to move on to our next judge, Sebastian, for your vote and analysis. Yeah, yeah thank you. Um, thank you for that. I think, uh, like Teddy said, it was a pretty, uh, um, pretty interesting debate centered around four key questions here. So starting with the first question and the challenges in the, uh, in the workplace and the ability to address them, um, I think... Kelly overall did a better job at taking an issue um, here and how it was concretely addressed in the workplace. Um, I like the idea of taking real life examples, the fact that she was talking about the training that she implemented, that she was working closely with lawyers and that sort of things. Uh, when it comes to like climate change, environmental considerations and diversity in the workplace, Michael had a, 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 a good point around, which was more geopolitical and more holistic to my perspective in the impact of China and and competition in robotic space and the fact that there was overall risk of the US falling behind. Um, I think, although it's a very in interesting point, I I'm going to go with Kelly on that one because um, I also felt from a, fr from a presenting perspective that Michael was uh, pushing a little bit to the side um, the, the point that Kelly was trying to make around diversity, which I think as an investor, I would probably see it as a bit of a red flag. Um, so I would be careful with, with, with um, saying, for instance, that diversity is not a huge issue in the U.S. Or I mean, from a, I, I put myself in the shoes of someone who was listening to the, to, to, um, the debate um, straight through without doing it again and again, just first impression. And it kind of gave me the impression that it was kind of pushing me to the side that it was not a huge issue, which I think it's a bit detrimental to his pitch. Um, what I would have liked to see a bit more is the... Um, obviously, we're going through a major crisis at the moment, and I, I know everyone is talking about it and probably trying to um, 
not talk too much about it every day, every second, but I would like to understand concretely what sort of, um, how these guys are addressing the current crisis of COVID and the impact it has on the business, because I think it's a very important point to make and to see how they thrive or also addressing different challenges at this stage and how they concretely take action to mitigate the risk. Um, but overall, I would go with Kelly on that one. For the second question around the, um, the, the, the client and the allocation of resources, I like Mike's um, approach here um, with the idea of building the trust and, and the relationship, which um, as a short-term solution enables you to eventually um, be more in the in the control. And here I'm kind of going against what Teddy is saying, but I think it's a different opinion, although I agree with some points he's making, but I, I like the idea of, of, of building on this full transparency and um, being able to have build this trust and have the, the pricing exercise done with the with the key client because I think eventually this is something that should be down to service and customer service and if you feel like you have the appropriate relationship with these with these uh, clients it's important that you can have these tough talks with them um, but Kelly's making uh, very good points but I think they were just um, a, a little bit more too uh, prospective in terms of diversifying revenue model and and um, I would I wanted something a bit more concrete here so I would um, I would go with Michael on that one. Um, so after two questions, uh, we've got a bit of a, of a tie, and I think where Kili really made the difference for me was in, on question three and the overtime question. Um, again, fully agree with, with what Teddy's saying on, on the idea that she's a second-time founder. Starting with the question three, what is the most important role of a, of a founder when scaling? Um, I like the idea of where she starts, where she's like, okay, we need to convey the vision, we need to be able to build a leadership team, um, to, you know, in order to, to dilute the noise um, with an ability to delegate and, and being able to think outside the box, um, challenge ideas, uh, no status quo, um, and the ability to pivot if necessary, which I, I really, uh, really agree with. Michael was focusing, the first sentence he said was um, that it, the absolute necessity was to multiply shareholder value, which I think is a bit tricky to say, although um, no one is going to argue against that because eventually this is kind of a, something that everyone is hoping for. But I think he was kind of taking the question the other way around. He should have probably focused a bit more on, on, on concrete actions and traits of a founder that are important in order to multiply the shoulder value. So I think that was better addressed by Kelly from that perspective. Um, and when it comes to the overtime question and the, uh, the key traits of personality on, on a team to have early on, um, I like Michael's uh, Michael's point of, on about energy perseverance, and you need to believe um, because you want someone to be motivated to be able to join a company at a lower salary, um, convince them on the equity um, structure, and and be able to still work day in day out, twelve hours a day. But I think again, Kelly was more concrete, um, and it's probably spoke more from experience, um, which again is back to the point that. She's a second-time founder and, and all around having great determination, not being afraid of ambiguity, uh, being able to take a direction and get on with things and still being able to challenge um, while providing a focus um, to, to the team to not go rogue. Um, I think it's, it's, it really tells a story and I think I like, to, uh, I, I like the way she articulated this answer. Um, it felt just a bit more experienced to my, from my perspective. So um, I... I'd say overall, Kelly, based on based on, on that, um, I would give it three points, and uh, Michael would end up with one, so Kelly would be my winner. Great, thank you for that, Sebastian. So that's two out of three votes, and that's enough to go to the championship for, for Kelly, but we still have one more judge, so I'm going to toss it over to you, AJ, for your unique perspective to share insight and your pick. 
Yeah, I'll keep this fairly brief. I think Teddy and Sebastian covered a lot of the points that I wanted to make and uh, have illustrated a lot of the details of the debate, and it was a really good one. Um, so I'm going to try to find some unique and new aspects to add, and it might be brief, but at least better than redundant. Um, so on question one, I, I really appreciate Kelly's point about the fact that everybody in this competition is a startup, and so for these types of key issues, it's a really great opportunity to start with them right away and make them a priority and a focus initially, as opposed to being a big company that's old and stodgy and slow moving and trying to fix it through throwing money at the solution or hiring somebody with a fancy title. So just really like that overall point. And I thought her focus on the topic, um, a little bit to what Teddy said, I think it was a little bit more at the center of what she was focused on as a founder, whereas I thought Michael maybe pushed it to the side a little bit. And I felt like that even the geopolitical aspect of his business and his perspective, that's a little bit more of a result of being successful as a business, as opposed to a centered thesis of what they're trying to accomplish. Um, on question two, so I gave that one to Kelly. On question two, I gave this one to Kelly as well. Um, her answer about diversing, diversifying revenue is near and dear to my heart. Uh, my first business as a founder was in client services, and it was always something that we saw other folks in the industry fail at where they got fired by a major client and then their business crumbled. So we always held the diversification of revenue uh, very high. And so that point alone really took it away from me. Um, while I appreciated Michael's point about building deep relationships and transparency with conversations, you know, I've actually done that plenty of times. And even then, the end result is, I love you, you're great, that was super transparent, but that doesn't work for me, so now what? Um, so I thought her, uh, somebody made the point before that it's a little bit more in her control than I think Michael's answer is a little bit more in the control of the customer. Because uh, no matter how transparent and, and deep the relationship is, there's still business at the end of the day that may prevent a customer from severing ties. Uh, so I gave that one to Kelly. On question three, um, you know, in this format's following Teddy's a little bit, uh, you know, he and I were really in lockstep, I think, in our interpretation. Uh, I gave this one to Michael. Um, I just thought that his answer as far as most important role of the founder, you know, I think there's a, and I didn't realize this in the first business that I started, but I, I realized it more so years down the line and even with other business that I started. If your core focus is multiplying shareholder value, the rest can take care of itself because if you're not increasing the value of the business and increasing the quality of the product or the service um, you're going to run into issues that you can't solve because at the core that's so important so while i agreed with so much of what kelly said i just think michael's answer hit the nail on the head here and, and gave him the slight edge on that one and then uh lastly going to the overtime question um i think kelly's answer of finding employees that are more entrepreneurial and less afraid of ambiguity allows them to move faster. And so I think speed is so important. I thought Michael's answers, while vital, I think were almost customary and kind of no brainers, so to speak. And I think Kelly's answer kind of unpackaged that, but then added in this other detailed nuance that I think really separated it. So at the end of the day, um, you know, I think it was a very good debate, uh, but I gave it Kelly 3-1 and Kelly overall. Great. Thank you for that, AJ. And congratulations, Kelly. You just got a ticket to the championship, which will be this Thursday on the 21st at 5 p.m. Eastern time. So thank you, Teddy, Sebastian, and AJ for that amazing analysis for our founders. 
please use the uh, hashtag debate for COVID and please donate to the pledge campaign to support CDP COVID-19. This founder believes the world of sports will experience many changes in the next 10 years. He believes that to protect the health and well-being of athletes, team-sanctioned on-field practice time will reduce by 15 to 20% by the year 2025. All the way from the best coast, Jason Robinson and Playbook Playbook 5. is a learning platform for athletes and coaches to practice virtually. Playbook 5 allows athletes to step on the field from anywhere and learn the game at their own pace. Our mission is to help athletes of the future experience sport better than we did. Load it to our platform. From there, any member of the team can access the later model and use a Google Cardboard compatible device to perform simulated reps of the plays in virtual reality. This founder believes traditional sports media publishers without live rights will be obsolete in a few years because athletes and entertainers will break their own news with journalists on their own social media once individual monetization becomes streamlined. Give it up for Tiffany Kelly and Cura Story. Hi, everyone. My name's Tiffany Kelly. I'm founder and CEO of Cura Story. Um, Cure Story is a video tech marketplace where we connect videos by topics to brands for sponsorship. Um, we're starting with athlete content creators and connecting their videos to health, wellness, and fitness brands for them to sponsor. Um, currently, influence marketing is super annoying. Um, from 200,000 videos that we've analyzed on Instagram, only 39% of them perform at expectation. Content creators don't want to customize. They don't want to kind of do all of these things. So um, we've actually built tech to where we project engagements, we project micro communities um, for the video, and we kind of connect that to the brands for brands to have their logo and brand awareness um, watermarked throughout the video. And so that's what we're doing. And super excited to have you guys kind of watch our debate. Thank you, founders, for those introductions. Let's kick it over to our head referee, Nick. All right. Welcome, everybody. We are in the final four of the Sports Startup Debate Competition, and we are in the finals for all of these respective categories. So now we have the sports tech and analytics versus the athlete performance and wearables. And we have Tiffany and Jason who have made it and beat out all their competition in their respective divisions. And now we're on to the final four. So welcome founders. It's going to be a great debate to get things started. We're going to do a coin flip to determine who will answer the first question. So Tiffany, would you like heads or tails? This is literally my first time choosing. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to choose. Um, Tails never fails. All right. It is tails. So would you like to receive the question or defer? We're going to defer. All right. So Jason, you'll answer the first questions. All right. And remember, you'll get 45 seconds to answer uninterrupted. I'm going to have a hard stop. And then Tiffany will have her chance to respond. And the same rule applies. And then you can go back and forth. 
if we could put 10 minutes on the clock, best of luck to both of you. And here's the first question. How do you leverage equity when trying to acquire talent that you can't afford or to incentivize current employees? Yeah, so equity is great, but ultimately it's only as valuable as the vision. Uh, 2%, 2.5% of zero is zero. So I think in order to leverage it the best way, you want to be able to articulate how that equity is going to grow over time, how, how, what you're going to be able to do to create the value of it and ultimately get people bought into that vision as well. Through my experience, I've seen that when you can show them how that stock option grant is going to increase over time and, and what role they'll play in it, they're more likely to buy in and to play a role and they'll take some ownership on seeing the company reach that value. But um, equity is- Equity right, is- we'll you right there and, and Tiffany, your response. So equity pool is super important. I think about uh, 10 to 20% of your shares should be kind of left over for your equity pool. Um, your first 15 to 20 employees should be getting equity. Um, of course, with like the cliff and all of um, the stipulations that you kind of put towards it. But honestly, like we've built our MVP. I've we built it without paying anyone a dime yet. And so that really is kind of picking and having people that are passionate about the company and they kind of understand what we're building and um, the white space that we're kind of occupying with our, with our product. So um, equity pool is a thousand percent important and investors actually make you have it. So um, I know that I put forth some equity towards technical, some equity towards non-technical, um, especially with the first 15 to 20 employees. Right, and uh, a follow-up question to that be, how would you um, evaluate or give a ratio to where you allocate your equity, whether it's business development or technical uh, people on your team? How would you allocate that uh, across the board? Yeah, so for Kira's story, I think 05 to 2% goes to non-technical and then um, about 2 to 5% goes to technical just because of the, I mean, everyone is equally important, but um, just kind of the brain power and, and the actual, since we have a tech product, um, allocating a little bit more of that equity to the technical people on your team. Um, that's kind of what we're what we're doing at Cure Story. All right, and Jason? Yeah, I, I think that comes down to like really what they're gonna be uh, tasked with delivering once they come on board. Uh, how much of that is gonna come from it's going to be new new assignments and things that the original team has set in place won't have to do. So it's tough to, for me to really put a, a number of value on that because it's really case by case, but it, it is. It's like, hey, what are you going to be doing? What is that worth? How big of a need is that? Uh, and then we, we, we associate the value to it at that point. Great. So the next question, how do you look at possibly reskilling or replacing your initial workforce as your company scales? And uh, Jason, we'll give you that question. Um, so I... In the hiring, um, in the hiring process, it's important with both junior and senior uh, hires to figure out if they're willing to mentor, because that's going to have a lot to do with who we hire in the future. If we can move people up from within, or if we have to go outside. Um, and at the end of the day, for me and the team, it's really about putting the best per best person in position to do the job. Um, we feel like that if you are in a junior, junior or senior role, you should have the ability to mentor, especially at a company like ours where you know, the headcount is relatively low and it likely will be um, you know, as we continue to grow and scale. So we want people to be 
um, high utility players and being able to, yes, do their job, but also be able to groom people that we can keep within. Because as everyone knows, onboarding and teaching people is, is a huge cost, both on time and resources. Yeah, totally. I would lean closer towards reskilling um, than replacing. I know from a culture standpoint within startup world, if you are a startup that's kind of known to replace your employees and to kind of fire a lot of people, that horrible company culture. So um, especially, and also if you are kind of an early stage company, you really kind of need to have a pulse as a founder when you're hiring who's a generalist and who's a specialist. Um, because kind of having an understanding on that, then it will help you kind of hedge against having to fire people in the future um, and kind of moving towards reskilling as opposed to replacing. So for example, I consider myself a generalist data scientist. Um, I can do kind of all things like data engineering, um, scraping, building models, um, and kind of putting them into production. But I kind of do lean towards kind of like building models and machine learning. and so. Having that understanding when you are hiring, okay, this might be a generalist UX designer, but they lean closer to research, right? So then once you do scale, you kind of help reskill um, and push them towards that specialty. Um, that way you're kind of starting with generalists that can do everything, which you need to have that in the beginning when um, you have strapped for capital as a startup. But then um, once you're kind of scaling, people can kind of start going into these specialized roles. All right, next question would be, you brought in your first hire to focus on sales and business development. What steps are most important to ensure they will be successful? Yes, um, so there are two things that are extremely critical with your first sales hire. Um, one being the emails that they send out need to be educational. So your entire marketing funnel needs to be an educational marketing funnel. And two, um, say that you have hooked a lead and they're ready for a product demo. The product demo should be focused on how your platform saves time, makes your the potential customer money, and how they're connecting with their target users. And so I'll give an example of Curasory for both of those. So we are a marketplace that connects athlete video topics to brands for sponsorship. Some of the email, educational email marketing that we do for athletes is we say, hey, mental health topics are trending during COVID. Go create a video about how you're dealing with this without sports being trapped in the house. And on the flip side, we would email market brands like Calm, Headspace Talks, um, sorry, Headspace Talkspace saying, hey, athletes X, Y, and Z have created these videos. They're trending on social media. Come into our marketplace so you can actually sponsor them. Uh, All right, well, uh, before we go into more due depth, we'll give Jason a shot here. Yeah, so I think first of all, it's important for them to understand the customer's needs and the problem that we are solving as our as our product and service is coming into them. Um, also, they need to know every deal, every detail about the product, um, not just about where it's at, where we plan to take it, and also how we got to where we're at. Um, they also need to be able to perform an awesome product demonstration. Um, obviously, product demonstrations for us are very critical, and we want uh, our business and development sales roles to be able to you know, show the ease of use with the product in their demonstration. And uh, and lastly, but definitely not last priority is, there needs to be a prioritization of relationship building. Um, sales and business development is largely based on the relationship. So anybody that's coming in, I wanna make sure that they have a plan in place that is putting that as a priority. 
and that's for both new and existing contacts. We want to make sure that we're establishing relationships early on and maintaining them. All right, and uh, to kind of dive deeper into that, so what are some of the training that you use for your business developments? Um, how long does that take and what does that consist of to kind of elaborate and to be, if you could follow up with that? Yeah, I mean, so when I was kind of saying the product demo, like the training is really just making sure that those three things are being hit when you are kind of going through a sales product demo. So saving users time, um, our customers time, we show them immediately how they can filter videos in the marketplace to getting exactly what they want, making them money. The first thing on our stats dashboard page is their return on content spend. Um, so they're actually seeing, because we track videos, so seeing what they're getting a return on for the money that they're putting forth, um, which is making them money, and then connecting them to their target users as well, um, showing how the videos that they're sponsoring is connecting them to their target market. So I think for any company, hitting on those three, save time, make money, connect with users are extremely important um, to kind of teach and develop your salespeople how to actually move through the product demo um, and only kind of really focusing on those those top three things. And of course, answering other questions that the customer might, might have. Jason, your response to that, that same follow-up? So it's taken for us now roughly about two weeks. We try to focus on people who have uh, existing experience in, in this industry, whether it be in, in selling sporting goods, selling other software solutions to high school coaches, um, selling into teams and organizations. So, you know, we don't have to spend a ton of time teaching them uh, the ins and outs of the industry and how to, you know, deal with the cadence of sport. Uh, we really try to spend about two weeks on the product, like heavy. Um, you know, I, we give them a viewer, we give them an account, and first thing I do is say, just spend four days with it and don't even talk to me. Write down everything you feel like, write down everything you see, like let me know what you're experiencing. And from there, we'll take some feedback and then after that second week of training, uh, I'm going off that what I learned in that first week to figure out the best way to prepare them to go out into the field. Great, so that's all the time we have and we're gonna end it on one overtime question. Um, there's not gonna be any back and forth, it's just leaving on your highest uh, statement in 30 to 45 seconds. So. Um, Final question would be, Twitter just announced that employees will be able to work from home forever if they want. Are you for or against the employee's choice to have full remote work environment? And is that actually possible for your business? So Jason, you'll have 30 to 45 seconds to answer that and then Tiffany is here. For sure, so my, my co-founder Paulette Trent actually lives in the Bay Area, I'm here in LA, and we've been remote uh, literally since we met, met and founded this company. Uh, so I'm a little bit more biased towards remote However, I do feel like uh, a hybrid of the two is best for smaller size teams, uh, especially, you know, to be able to, you know, build rapport, learn more about one another and, and reap the benefits of osmosis. So I don't know if it's real practical for us to think about a fully remote system as we continue to grow, but we'll definitely be building on our previous experience of having a remote team, you know, having a lot of trust and over communicating and making sure we're getting our, our projects done. Yeah, so I, I mean, I'm also biased towards remote work. I, one of the reasons why I became a data scientist was so I could build models wherever I wanted in the world. Um, and I think half of our employees are actually remote, like outside of COVID, uh, half of them were remote. Um, I think as a company you, in the beginning startup, you need to be super lean. So I know the financials that we had going towards WeWork Labs are fully going towards other things in our, in our financials now um, and not getting office space. But I do think 
the osmosis, you can still kind of do that virtually, which um, a lot of technology has come out now because of COVID to be able to do that. So um, I definitely think a full work, remote work environment is totally accessible. Um, it's just kind of putting the policies in place if you are a larger company um, to kind of hit the goals that you need to hit if you are remote. Great. Well, Jason and Tiffany, great responses there, great debate. Now we're going to pass it over to the judges for their votes and analysis. If you haven't already, please donate to the uh, CDP COVID-19 Relief Fund that we have on Pledge It and use the hashtag debate for COVID to let us know that you're watching. Thank you. Now to the judges. Now let's introduce our judges. First up, Brian Reilly, founder and managing partner at Will Ventures. Next, Rowan Maholtra, co-founder at Sports Tech X. And lastly, Kai Bond, partner at Courtside Ventures. Let's kick it over to our head referee, Nick. That wraps up an amazing debate between Tiffany and Jason for the final four in the sports tech and analytics versus the athlete performance and wearables. And now we're on to the judges for their analysis and picks. So to kick things off, we're going to send it over to Roan for your analysis followed by your pick. All right. Uh, thanks, Nick. Um, I'm going to start with going maybe question by question. I think, uh, on question, the first one, I think Tiffany kicked off really strong. I thought Jason played it a bit safe with his answer. I mean, I felt it was a bit generic. Tiffany seemed to bring like, really good examples with uh, the points that she made about how she was talking about equity, what her vision for it was within the company. Um, so I think that over there, she kind of took it, uh, took that one for me. Uh, for the second question as well, I felt that again, Tiffany had built a really good case. She uh, brought in really good examples again from from what they were doing uh, at her company she also mentioned uh the company a couple of times and i thought jason again lagged a bit behind i felt he was still playing a bit safe for me um and though on the, on the next question i felt he came back in so uh, i felt that tiffany kind of took an early lead and and jason clawed his way back into the conversation i think as he built up uh he was able to establish his use case uh, a bit better um but overall, I think there were three reasons that I was looking for. For number one was who could establish uh, with clear examples how they were thinking and bring use cases from their actual business uh, in, into the presentation. Um, number one, number two, which answers were more clear, direct, and weren't like kind of on the fence-ish. And I think one person did that. And the third one, kind of a small one, but like. I think Tiffany also mentioned her company's name a couple of times, which I didn't hear once from Jason. Kind of small thing, but when you have this platform and you're on the stage, uh, every marketing plug is worth it. So yeah, I think overall for me, it has to go to Tiffany. I think Jason made some great points, uh, but yeah, I think she took it uh, overall. Thank you for that round. So that is one vote for Tiffany. We need two out of three judges. So we're gonna go over to Brian for his analysis and pick. Awesome. So first off, Jason, Tiffany, I thought you both did a great job. So uh, kudos to both of you and kudos to you for betting on yourselves and taking the risk. I know it's not easy. So congrats on all the progress to date. Uh, so I also scored this by round so we can go through each. Uh, so in round one, I went with Jason. And I, I think 
Tiffany, you know, she had a really clear grasp on the mechanics of granting equity, how to leverage it. But ultimately, I, I liked what Jason emphasized. So you know, as a founder, you need to be able to sell a vision not only to your investors, but to your employees. And uh, one of the founders and CEOs biggest role is hiring, right? And to those that can sell a great vision are ultimately the ones that can attract the best talent. So ultimately, you know, the better you can sell that vision, the more money a potential hire is going to attribute to that equity grant. So I liked what he emphasized there. And I also liked what Jason had to say about allocating equity across various roles. You know, obviously there's market precedent for everything and there's market precedent uh, for every role, but it's not always so black and white. And I, I think it's really helpful to consider um, first market precedent, but you need to stay flexible and fine tune each employee's package based on their experience and responsibilities. So I like that Jason made note of that. Uh, as far as round two though, I did have Tiffany. Yeah, I think Tiffany made some great points regarding culture. Your reputation is critical uh, to your ability to hire as a new startup. And having high turnover is definitely a poor way of maintaining a strong reputation. Uh, I also did like what Tiffany had to say about generalists versus specialists. You know, as a startup, it's critical to balance both. You know, in order to stay lean and efficient with capital, you need generalists early on that can work cross-functionally and contribute in multiple areas. You want people that have, uh, you know, a real core strength, like go-to-market strategy, who can own a few different roles at the outset. And more typically, you know, you'll tend to increase your, your specialist hires as you mature as a company. So I thought Tiffany really, you know, showed clear thought process there. Uh, and in round three, yeah, I went back to Jason. So, uh, you know, I thought, uh, you know, his point on process around establishing and maintaining relationships, yeah, I think that's one of the most important things a young startup can do. As an early team, it's really critical to get out there and network your butt off. And knowing the right people and the right strategic partners that can greatly accelerate your distribution and, and help you achieve some real business model leverage. Uh, and I, I think for focusing, you know, when it comes to, to hiring, I, I think focusing on work experience when you hire, it's critical. You know, I'm, I'm actually going back to my last comment, I think this ties into what Tiffany said regarding generalist versus specialist. You know, to start your management team, typically your CEO is your sales lead, and this is out of necessity, but as you help you know, as you build a team, uh, you know, and you get to the point where you can hire a real salesperson, experience in the role and in the industry is critical. So as a young startup, you know, first building out a sales function, you really want someone with that experience. Uh, and this will keep the management team from, you know, having to burn too much time, getting someone up to speed, in addition to saving time from a training perspective, you'll reap the benefits of having that broadened network that comes from an experienced sales professional. Uh, and, and lastly, you know, on the overtime round, uh, I, I also went with Jason. And, and I think the, the easy comment is obviously I think it's, we're all sort of biased towards a remote culture given the current climate. But I do think in, in an ideal world, hybrid's best. And some of this comes down to personal preference. But I do agree with Jason that in-person is the best way to build rapport and a strong culture. And I think setting that foundation is, is uh, critical to any startup. And I think it's just easiest to do that in person. So ultimately, you know, I think both did an exceptional job, but I have to lean towards Jason on this one.
Great. Thank you for that, Brian. So now we are in a tiebreaker. One vote, Tiffany. One vote, Jason. And now, Kai, you are in the hot seat to decide who will go to the championship round. So could you please provide your analysis followed by your pick? Sure. Um, you know, fascinating battle. Um, had a lot of fun listening to the back and forth. Um, you know, one of the, the points that I, I found in the first round that was particularly interesting is this idea of equity tied to passion. Um, and I think, you know, I back first time founders as a venture capitalist. Um, and it's hard to make a hire where you don't have a seasoned professional. I thought Tiffany made some really interesting points um, around this, uh, this area as well. So, um, you know, I thought it was fascinating kind of going through that. Um, you know, on the, the topic of <clears throat> sort of culture and building a remote culture, right? This is a fascinating one to me. As a founder, I always said, everybody's got to be in the same room. Like, I need you here. We need to like argue it out. I need to see where that pixel is and that passion. I think it's, I agree. It's very hard to recreate, but when you see something like a, like a, a GitHub, right? That's built a hundred percent remote, um, from the workforce. Um, I just find that, you know, maybe I'm old <laughs> and uh, some of this is ageist against myself. Um, but you know, the more that I've seen individuals thrive on independence, um, uh, intellectual curiosity, um, again, tying that kind of remote culture back to a passion, um, for me, uh, when it all came down to how it was viewed, I thought that Tiffany, you know, won the battle. Great. Thank you for that, Kai. So, Tiffany, congratulations. That's two out of the three votes. Congratulations. You are on to the championship for the Sports Art Debate Competition. On to the championship round going down this Thursday night at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with judges David Meltzer, Wayne Kimmel, and Marquise Colston, who will decide which founder goes home with the belt. Remember, our debate for COVID initiative, we're still trying to get to that $10,000 goal. We'll see you in a couple days. Have a great evening.